Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well, enjoying the warm weather. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm not enjoying our cold weather. Yeah, sorry to rub it in. I know, and in the winter, when it's your winter, I can't really rub it in because it doesn't get nearly as cold there, so it doesn't, no. doesn't really work out that way. But I can still wear a t-shirt for most of winter. So that helps. I need to move. Tonight we're going to actually talk about two cases. They are unrelated because we often come across cases or get requests for cases that are shorter than what we usually aim for each week. I mean, we could do 30-minute episodes, but we like to do longer ones. So we look around, we try to find another story to pair them with so that we can do a double header. And so tonight we're actually going to talk about two doe cases. Our first case is the case of Lyle Stevick, and he was a young man and who was found hanging in his hotel room. And our second case is Princess Doe. She was a teenage victim. She was found severely beaten and left kind of in a ravine next to a cemetery. Both of these cases, even though they happened on the opposite coasts, they both involve using isotope testing to determine more information about them, about the does. And we're going to talk a little bit about the science of that. So a thank you to Robert, Lauren, and Angela for suggesting these cases. And honestly, I think Lyle's been suggested by even more people, but we tend to only keep track of the first couple. I have to say there is one thing that I'm really looking forward to at CrimeCon, and that's that we're going to be able to sit in sessions with forensic experts. I mean, there's going to be a search and rescue dog team there. They're going to be crime scene analysts. And it's one thing for me to read a whole bunch of articles on all these topics and bring you the information, but I'm really excited to be able to sit there, learn from the experts, ask some questions. So, you know, maybe someone will even be able to explain this isotope testing to me a little bit better when we're at CrimeCon. And in case you don't know about CrimeCon, it is June 9th through the 11th in Indianapolis. If you use the discount code INSIGHTFUL20, you get 20% off your ticket price. Allie and I, along with a whole bunch of people, are going to be there. And we're really looking forward to meeting other podcasters and especially listeners. But we're also looking forward to these forensic sessions where we can really learn more about the stuff that we're talking about every week. Believe me, I'm on the countdown 20 weeks to go. To go ahead and get started, we're going to talk about Lyle first. And so we'll just start with when he enters the stage. Like I said, this is a Doe case, but we have a name for him. So that's a little bit different than the usual Princess Doe, Sumter County Doe's, Annandale Jane Doe, the names we give them. This is a name he gave himself. So on Friday, September 14th, 2001, at about 4.30, 4, 4.30 in the afternoon, Lyle Stevick signed in at the front desk of the Lake Quinault Inn in Amanda Park, Washington. And in case you've never heard of Amanda Park, Washington, you're probably in the majority. It's a very small area. And so that you can picture it a little bit, all the rooms of this hotel had exterior entrances. There weren't interior hallways or elevators or anything. It's more like that motel setup. He arrived about the same time as two different buses that were coming from two different directions, but no one actually saw him get off the bus, and they never found a ticket stub or a receipt. They asked bus drivers, and the bus drivers don't remember seeing him, so he could have hitchhiked. We really don't know how he got there, which means we don't know which direction he came from. 
the clerk, Barbara, did detect a light accent, and she believed he might have been Canadian. Now, for our international listeners, a Canadian accent doesn't actually rule out northern U.S. I mean, every time I'm in Minnesota, I joke that Minnesota sounds like it's full of Canadians because my ear cannot discern the difference between a Minnesota, Wisconsin accent and a Canadian accent. Being in Washington state, she may not, even though she's close to Canada, it's a different part of Canada. So we're still talking, you know, Great Lakes region is still a possibility. It wouldn't be the first time an accent has been misplaced. There have been times in my past when someone has asked me if I was British or from New Zealand, when I think it's quite obvious to most people that I sound very Australian. So I can understand that she may have misplaced him being Canadian when really he wasn't. Yeah, uh, fun fact. If you were from New Zealand or Australia, I couldn't tell the difference. It's just sometimes you need to be in the region. I'm sure people in Minnesota can tell if you're from Minneapolis or Winnipeg, but me, y'all sound the same. We probably have people listening now going, Charlie, you're an idiot. (laughs) Pretty much everyone in Minnesota and the Great Lakes region is like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. But but I can tell you, I can tell the difference between a Newport, Rhode Island and a Boston, Massachusetts accent, and a lot of people can't. So it really does. It's what you're familiar with, what you grew up with. Barbara also thought he may have had a backpack with him, but she wasn't entirely sure. He did not have any identification, but she let him check in anyway. And in this initial encounter, he seemed okay. She didn't, she wasn't worried. So she didn't think checking him in without an ID was a huge deal. He paid for one night in cash and it cost $43.87. And he did have to fill out a registration card. And something that I found interesting as well is that Barbara doesn't remember him wearing or carrying a jacket, which is strange at that time of year. I checked and it would have been between 51 and 58 degrees. So, I mean, he may have had his jacket in his bag, but with the temperature, you would think that he would have his jacket close on hand if he had one. It's possible if he had been in that area for a while. I went to college in Idaho where like the Arctic wind comes down and goes over the town I was in. And it was so cold in the winter that if it hit 45, no one was wearing jackets. By the time it got to 55, people were in shorts. So, you know, but he did have a long sleeve shirt on, but you're right. He didn't have a jacket. She doesn't remember whether or not he had a backpack. And I, part of me thinks if he didn't have a backpack, that would have really stood out. Like if he had absolutely no luggage, that would have stood out. So for some reason, it didn't stand out to her. So it's possible he did have a backpack when he checked in. So he tells Barbara that his name is Lyle Stevick. And since we already said this is a Doe case, obviously this isn't his real name. One connection found to his name is a character in a book called You Must Remember This by Joyce Carol Oates. I haven't read this book myself, but from what I understand, the book's main character is a girl named Enid, and she attempts suicide by taking a bunch of aspirin. Enid's father is a man named Lyle Stevick. Now, the Lyle in the book spells his surname S-T-E-V-I-C-K. However, our Lyle fills out his paperwork for the hotel as S-T-E-V-I-K, so he leaves off the C. I mean, it's not a game changer, but it is different. 
In the book, the Lowell character is a father of four who is annoyed with the success of his flashier older brother. In one scene in the book, he contemplates committing suicide by hanging. He even goes as far as ringing up a rope to the rafter of his business, but he never goes through with it. So Joyce Carol Oates is a fantastic author, and I've read some of her books, and I actually have one coming up on my book club list. This isn't one I've ever heard of. She's won multiple awards for her books, five-time finalist for the Pulitzer, but this book wasn't one of those. Like I said, I've never even heard of this one. So I'm not saying this is where he got the name because it's possible and it's probably even likely, but it's so odd because it's such a a remote book for him to have come across. So you almost have to wonder if he was assigned to this book in a class, like a high school or college class, over choosing it for himself. Now, I'm not sure that narrows down anything, but this just doesn't seem like a book a 20-something-year-old man would have picked up on his own. I don't think the book is much of a clue of who he is, to be honest. My best guess is maybe the book rung true with him at some point in his life. As you said, maybe he read it at high school. Perhaps he related to the character of Lyle Stevick and it struck a chord with him. Or maybe it was another character in the book. Or maybe it was just the themes in the book he related to. The misspelling of the name, as I said, it's not a game changer, but I think it's too much of a coincidence to be a random name he picked out of the sky. In the police report, which some terrific person got through a Freedom of Information Act request, and they scanned it described for us, but in the police report, there was a Lyle Stevick, and that Stevick spelt like in the book, and he lived in Oregon. The police contacted his wife, and she said he definitely wasn't missing. But our Lyle met Oregon Lyle in his travels, and along the way, maybe decided to borrow his name. I guess it's possible. But the coincidence of the Lyle in the book contemplating suicide by hanging, and then our Lyle dying by suicide by hanging, as I said, it's hard to ignore. Based on the police reports, they looked at every stevic they could of any spelling. On the report, there is a handwritten note which says there are a lot of stevics in North Dakota, which is kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, it's kind of interesting. So also on the registration slip, Lyle had to give an address and he wrote the address of 1019 South Progress Avenue in Meridian, Idaho. Naturally, the police looked this up, and it's the address of another hotel, a Best Western Ramada. And it's about a nine or ten hour drive from Amanda Park where Lyle was found. When a police officer in Meridian went to that hotel, he had a picture of Lyle and he talked to the manager. And the manager didn't recognize him as either an employee or a guest. And that manager had been there for years at that time. But the odd thing about this is Lyle wrote this without consulting anything. He actually had this address memorized. It's not like he looked it up in a phone book or he had it written on a piece of paper. So he had to have been connected to that somehow or just, I don't know, maybe he found a random one and just knew he needed an address so he memorized it. I really, I don't know. I I think it's unlikely he just made it up for it to be another hotel I think it's more likely that he either came from that area or maybe he lived there for a while. Yeah, and I think it's possible he could have stayed 
at that hotel at some point. It's not, it wasn't a small hotel, you know, I mean, it wasn't a huge one, but managers, nobody sees every guest. So it's, it's possibly it stayed there. Especially if it was a large hotel, there is a decent chance that the manager didn't see him. Right. And if he checked in at weird hours, there's even a greater chance. An hour after Lyle checked in, he returned to the front desk and he was complaining about the noise from the trailer park behind the motel. So he was moved to room five, which was farther away from the trailer park and quieter. But in this interaction, unlike the one when he checked in, Barbara noticed he was agitated and he kind of weirded her out. She asked him if he had messed anything up in the room that he started in, room eight. He said that he just messed up the pillows a bit, but she later found out that he had actually taken a shower in there. He, I mean, he probably lied just so he didn't have to pay for two rooms. I don't know. Between the two rooms, they were essentially the same, with room five being in the main part of the building and further away from the trailer park noise, but one difference pointed out in the Lyle Stevick subreddit, um, I'm giving credit because this was actually a really good find and I don't want to act like I'm the one who found it. A user named Balthazaro noticed that room eight had a small wooden bar in the closet area and room five had a metal one. And the relevance yeah. of this we'll discuss later. I don't want to give away too much of the ending. Day two, there is some dispute. On some articles I read, they said on the Saturday he declined maid service, but he asked for extra towels. And then there is another article that didn't put this part in. For what exactly happened doesn't really affect the story, but he does tell the maid he's going to stay for a few more days, although he did only pay for that one night. Later that day, he's seen pacing outside his room, I also read he was pacing along the highway. The maid assumes he is exercising, which I think is weird. I mean, it's cold and he really isn't dressed to go for a walk. But I mean, as you said earlier, Charlie, maybe he's just climatized to the weather. Now, I think it's possible he was waiting for someone who didn't show. With the delaying of leaving and the pacing back and forth along the road, it does kind of appear that he could be waiting for someone to show up. On Sunday, the maid goes to Lyle's room, but he turns her away. However, this could be the time he asks for the extra towels. Regardless of that, this would be the last time anyone sees him alive. At some point during the day, Lyle somehow gets two copies of the local Sunday paper. Whether he buys the paper or if he's given the paper by someone else, no one knows. On Monday, Barbara, who is the front desk clerk, she's out of town, and Maricela, who is the maid, she knocks on Lyle's door at around 11.30 in the morning. It was past checkout time, and he still hadn't paid for the previous two nights. So the maid knocks, but there is no answer. She opens the door, and in the closet in the left corner of the room, she sees him kneeling with his back to the door. And when I say closet, the way the room is set out, it really is more of an alcove than a closet. So this alcove-closet situation means that Lyle can be seen in the closet from the doorway. She, So thinking she is interrupting something, the maid closes the door. She later says that it just looks like he was praying. 
But something must have bothered her because very soon after she calls she calls the owner of the hotel. When the owner gets there, he goes further into the room than the maid did. He goes close enough to see the belt around Lyle's neck. He backs out of the room as well and calls 911. EMS arrive on the scene first. The paramedic checks for vital signs, but he isn't able to find any. He also notices that lividity is starting to set in. So knowing there is nothing else he can really do, he leaves the room with all his equipment and waits outside for the police. And although by this stage, three people have entered the room, so we have the maid, the owner and the paramedic, no one has disturbed or touched anything and only one, being the paramedic, has touched the body. When the police arrive, an officer immediately takes photos of the scene and of the items that were in the room. So in talking about the scene, let's first start with Lyle. He was found hanging from his belt that was wrapped around his neck from the coat rack in this alcove slash closet. The bar was only four feet off the ground, so he was practically kneeling, enough so that that's what the maid thought he was doing at first. He had removed all of the coat hangers, and he lined the walls with pillows from the bed. Now, my guess, and I know online there's some debate about this, but I really do think he did that to cut down on the noise if he started thrashing at some point. We're hardwired to survive, and even people who are attempting to die by suicide, they have to fight that primal instinct to save themselves, and he probably didn't want to alert anyone to check on him and save him. So now let's go ahead back to that first room with the wood bar. And he said he had messed up the pillows. Had he tried to hang himself already and realized the way the room was set up with the wood bar, maybe it was smaller, that it wouldn't work? Because again, the only thing he said he messed up was the pillows. And he also had only paid for one night. So this gets me thinking, was his initial plan to kill himself right away because he only paid for one night? That didn't work. He got agitated. He went to the front desk to change rooms. And then he had second thoughts for a few days. I think that's I think that's a possibility. He also, when he was found, had a washcloth between the belt buckle and his neck. Yeah which I've read could have been to increase the pressure to kill him faster, but it also could have just been more comfortable than the belt buckle on the neck. So it could have just been a matter of comfort. I can't imagine the belt buckle felt good. He was wearing a pair of Levi jeans, and they were a size 36-34. He was wearing Hanes underwear, an extra large generic Fruit of the Loom t-shirt, white socks, and Timberland boots. So we need to actually talk about the size of his jeans for a second. I have a son who is six feet tall, 210 pounds, and this is the size pants he wears. However, Lyle was two inches taller than that, and he only weighed around 140 pounds. He was extremely thin. These pants were so big they had to roll them over a couple of times to have them fit him. So obviously, he also, an extra large shirt, he was swimming in. Because both of this and the notches in his belt showed, all the notches in his belt showed that there was some wear, it's believed he had been losing weight, and probably fairly quickly, in the months leading up to his death. Most estimates put it at 40 pounds, but 
honestly, I think he could even been, depending on how he carried his weight, it could have been even 60 pounds and still fit those jeans. Because I did read that too. If that's the only evidence that he lost weight, how do we know they're really his clothes? Maybe he got them at a secondhand store and that's all they had, or maybe they were given to him. Yeah, I did wonder about the secondhand store or having them taken, but they were just so big on him. I can't imagine someone... Uh, you'd have to be like completely naked to accept clothes that were that much bigger, I think. I think the belt was probably more telling that it had been getting smaller and smaller and smaller, being yeah. used smaller sizes. But it, it really did... When I heard that he was only 140 pounds and he wore 36, 34 in jeans, I mean, that's really big for that slender of a person. There was a pen in his front pocket and he had eight $1 bills in his back pocket. So let's talk about what they found in the room. On the nightstand was a folded piece of paper. Written on it were the words for the room and there were... And there was $160 in what looked like new, unused $20 bills. When he checked in, as we said earlier, he only paid for the first night. The next two nights would have cost less than $100. Now, I've seen people question why he overpaid for the hotel room by such a significant amount. But if he had the money with him, maybe he felt sorry for the hotel for leaving them with his body and what comes with it with the police being there public perception and all or maybe just the case that maybe if they didn't find him right away he was at least covered for at least another day a toothbrush and a tube of toothpaste were also found in the bathroom and both appeared to be fairly new there is an article which says the toothbrush was unopened and still in its packaging but then goes on to say the toothpaste was barely used and opened which doesn't really make any sense. Either he used both or used neither. If I had to take a wild guess, I would assume that he used both. The toothbrush and the toothpaste were the only personal items found in the room. And something that has kind of bothered me a bit, and I know it's only minor, I read, and you can also see in the autopsy photos, he only had slight stubble, but not much. This would indicate to me that he shaved at least once while he was at the hotel. But if he did, then what did he do with the razor? A long-sleeved shirt was also found in the room. It was crumpled on a chair, but it was the same shirt he was wearing when he checked into the hotel. In addition to the $160 he left for the room, there was also $2.40 in change in the desk drawer. In the trash can was a local newspaper from September 16, 2001 and there was also a copy on his bed. There was a crumpled piece of paper with the word suicide written in block letters. No food wrappers were found in the room, but there was a styrofoam cup used for soda that he had to have bought somewhere close by. There were no receipts for food. I think based on his suspected weight loss, I think it's possible he didn't eat all that weekend maybe part due to the nerves of uh, what he was about to do, or maybe due to his significant weight loss, or maybe he just ate somewhere else. But I think I do doubt that. It's really odd. He had to have gotten that paper cup somewhere. It was like a fountain drink Pepsi. I think it was Pepsi, not Coca-Cola, but Pepsi cup. Maybe there was a store in front of the hotel. Maybe he went there, got a paper. Why he would have bought two. 
I think with the newspaper too, maybe he did buy one and then when he went back to his room, a paper came with the room. It makes you wonder if there was something in the paper. Of course, if this was a movie, there would be something in the paper he was watching for, but it's probably nothing. We talked about what was there, but let's talk about what wasn't there because I think that's pretty telling. Uh, Pretty much nothing else was there. No ID, no backpack, no clothing, no other toiletries like a razor. He had recently had a haircut, but there was no grooming products for his hair. Like you said, he had very little stubble. So unless he just had a very slow growing beard, you would have thought you would think he would have shaved within that time. There's really nothing else that would give us any idea who he was or what he was doing for those three days in the hotel. Some people believe he may have had his stuff with him and he threw it into the lake either before walking up to the motel or possibly on the Saturday or Sunday after he checked in. It's not like he had a GPS unit and people were following him. We can only say what was seen, but he could have left and probably did leave the hotel at some point to get that cup of soda and the newspapers and nobody saw him. So he could have walked off with a backpack and came back and nobody would have seen him. And look, this is horrible. I don't want to accuse anyone of anything. But do you think maybe someone could have taken his bag? Yeah, if someone got to that room before the maid. And I mean, things get stolen out of hotel rooms. So it is possible it could have been stolen. Because it just seems strange to me that a man would arrive at a hotel in the late afternoon and not have anything with him. No ID and no spare clothes. I mean, what if the hotel wanted to see his ID? And did he just have his toothbrush in his pocket? Here's something I was thinking. If he really did intend on committing suicide that first night that he was there, maybe he didn't have anything with him at all because why would he need it? He took a shower. He had no reason to. Right. He took a shower so he'd be clean. He arranged the pillows. It didn't work. He got agitated, changed rooms. So maybe he didn't have anything. But then when he realized he wasn't actually going anywhere for the next you know, he he didn't commit suicide. He went and got a toothbrush and toothpaste from wherever he got the cup of soda and wherever he may have eaten, wherever he got the paper. And he had just gotten those. Like, he didn't travel with them. And this is really disgusting. And I'm sorry for bringing it up, but he seemed very into being very presentable to whoever to whoever found him, as in like brushing his teeth and shaving and wearing nice clothes. That's why I think back to maybe he didn't eat all weekend because if he'd eaten when he had killed himself, maybe he would have a bowel movement and wouldn't be so pristine. That's a good point because he he seemed very he seemed to be thinking about the people who would find him with leaving extra money and all of that. Exactly. He seemed to be very conscious of that. And an investigator said there is a chance he had stuff with him and he disposed it of it somewhere, but that they never really had enough evidence to launch a, a big search into finding his things. So let's give a basic description of Lyle, even though I guess we have covered some of it already. But Lyle was six foot two and about 140 pounds when he died. And as you said earlier, Charlie, it was thought that he had lost a lot of weight in the months beforehand. He had black hair and hazel eyes. He's officially listed as being Caucasian, but I have seen him being described as possibly Native American or Hispanic, 
even Egyptian in some places. He was healthy, he had no chronic illnesses, and his tox screen came back clear. He has an appendectomy scar, but that was faded and not from a recent surgery. Besides that, he did have a small mole on his right cheek, but there wasn't any other distinguishing features. But actually, something worth of note, Lyle had fixed earlobes, which I think it's fair to say isn't all that common, and there are variations of fixed earlobes. And when I say fixed, what first comes to my mind is Gwyneth Paltrow. So if you go have a look at her ears, you'll understand what I mean by fixed earlobes. The difference between fixed, they're also called attached, and the more common free earlobes isn't as black and white as you think it is. There are variations, but Lyle's ears were completely fixed right to the end. He was estimated as being between 20 and 30 years old when he died, putting his year of birth somewhere between 1971 and 1981. If you have a look at the police report, though, it does say he's between 30 and 40 years old in one place, but it's fair to say that it probably is a mistake because everywhere else it says 20 to 30. So as I said, he was healthy and he had straight teeth with only one filling. He was missing four teeth, but they are the ones that are generally the ones you have removed for braces. With his missing teeth and the straightness of his teeth, I think it's fair to say that he did have braces at some stage. That leads a lot of people to think he came from a middle class background at the very least. He had no tan lines, so wherever he was staying prior to making it to Amanda Park, it was likely indoors. So I guess that rules out him being homeless, right? I would absolutely think so. And I think his just basically immaculate um, presentation, he had access to washing clothes, taking showers, that sort of thing. I have read that he had scrapes on his knuckles, but I only saw one photo of two scrapes. I've seen people think with the the scrapes and the weight loss that he may have been bulimic, and that would explain why he had a toothbrush and toothpaste. That would be the only hygiene items he would have is because you often want to brush your teeth after you've thrown up. I don't know that there was any signs of that... Repeated vomiting causes physical signs in your esophagus and on your teeth. Yes. There were no other signs. It's really just kind of circumstantial. He had these scrapes, which you could get from knocking your hand into a wall, just, you know, accidentally. But he also had the toothbrush and toothpaste. So I see where people are coming with on that, but I'm not sure. You know, bulimia actually, one of the odd things with bulimia is it usually doesn't cause extreme weight loss. It's, it, it's, a, it's a whole thing. But, but it is a theory that's out there, and I see where people are coming from with it. I would think it was more likely he scraped his knuckles while he was setting up for what happened. Right. Police also have dental charting, DNA, and fingerprints on file, And they have run fingerprints through a whole multitude of databases, as well as sending them to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, but obviously without any success. There is an age regression photo out there, hoping someone might recognise him from high school. The regression photo shows him with the same facial structures, which I mean, I have a friend who has recently lost a significant amount of weight in a short period of time, 
she just started eating healthier and exercising. But she went to the airport to go overseas and they actually didn't believe it was her. She looked that different. So having an age regression photo of him looking exactly the same and if he has lost a lot of weight, it might not help at all. They have reconstructions of him at the age he died that do depict him as a little heavier like like he was. But this young teen picture is of someone who's on the slender side. So I think we don't know if he was a heavyweight teenager or not. So I think it would be helpful to have an age regression photo where his face was filled out a little bit more. And he has a really strong jawline, really strong cheekbones. Had he gone through puberty a little later, he wouldn't have had those things at 13, 14, 15. So I think these reconstructions are fantastic. And a lot of people have done them. There's a lot of interest in this case. So if anyone out there knows how to do reconstructions, just do one more. (laughs) Do a regression photo of him. A little softer features. That would be my suggestion. I actually follow someone on Facebook that does the reconstructions. I actually might send him a message and just put it out there. Yeah, that's a good idea. And while we're talking about the artist's compositions, something that stuck with me since seeing the these photo these pictures is just how sad he looks. There is something in his eyes that looks so lost. It's really sad. Another avenue that authorities were able to use is actually pretty recent. It's called isotope testing. And this testing was done in 2015 and the report was released in April of 2016. So this is fairly new information in this case. So what an isotope analysis is, is it's essentially looking at the distribution of isotopes in a sample. So you could do this with a rock, but in this case, with forensic isotope analysis, they look at hair and they look at teeth, the enamel on the teeth. And this helps them learn more about the development. So in the case of Lyle, they did the isotope analysis on both his hair and on a molar. Now, even though people talk about, oh, my hair grows fast, my hair grows slow, the truth is that most humans' hair grows at a pretty consistent rate. There's some variation, but not as great as we might think in our heads. It's a pretty good indicator of timeline because it is pretty consistent growth. What affects the hair is water intake and diet. By analyzing a year's worth of hair growth, the isotopes can narrow down where the person has been Because the stable isotopes vary based on the geology of the area. So essentially the water I'm drinking here in Missouri, like right now, and the water Allie is drinking in Australia right now, it's not the same. If someone decided to analyze our hair, they could see that. Hair grows and falls out, so it can only be used for about 12 months prior to the death. But the tooth, the enamel is formed during childhood. And so the tooth can give us indications of where he grew up. So this report concluded a few things. Now, first, his hair showed he was living a transient life leading up to his death. Like we've pointed out, he doesn't have signs that he was living a homeless life. However, he had moved quite some distance at least three times in the previous 12 months. And I mean a distance, not across town. He moved to where the isotopes would be different. He may have moved more often, not but not staying long enough to affect his hair growth or not moving far enough away to show 
different isotopes. His new hair growth, like the newest, was not consistent with Amanda Park or anywhere in that area, but actually somewhere warmer. But his hair from a month or two before his death was consistent with that area, so it's possible he had been up there, he had left to go south, and then he returned for some and reason. That could explain why, and that would explain why he knew the address of the other hotel. Maybe he lived there for a certain period of time. Right, because Meridian and Amanda Park are only nine or ten hours apart. Isotope testing isn't that precise. They're definitely within the same range. Yeah. And the second thing, what his teeth showed us, is that he likely did not grow up in the Pacific Northwest. And within 12 months of his death, comparing the tooth with the hair, he actually spent some time in an area similar to where he did grow up. So the isotope testing in his tooth showed that he could be from some parts of the western U.S., multiple Midwest states, including that Great Lakes region that I keep bringing up, and then some parts of the East Coast. Now, that sounds like I'm saying it's everywhere, West Coast, Midwest, (laughs) East Coast, but it's only portions of the East and Western parts of the country that are consistent with this analysis, not like the whole area. But personally... I'm going to go on record saying with that slight Canadian accent Barbara picked up, I think the upper Midwest of the United States is probably a pretty good guess. And with all the Stevics in the Dakotas, I mean, that's a pretty good guess too. You know, I just want to go isotope crazy and test everyone, especially the Sumter County does. I think it would answer so many questions in that case. Exactly. Because it would give a geographical direction of where the investigators could look instead of right now where it's where in the world are the Sumter County does. Right. And I think in this case with Lyle, because of his features, some people, like you said, think he may be of Egyptian descent. And the Sumter County does, I mean, it was every region except the United States was being thrown around. Exactly. We could know. So this tells us that he was born in the United States and the largest area that includes the isotopes would be that Great Lakes upper Midwest region. And with all the Stevics in the Dakotas, which isn't exactly in that area, but it may be a name he had become familiar with while he was in that area. I mean, I I think this does this does help. It's not giving us an answer, obviously. But the information's been out for less than a year. So here's hoping that this does give something. And that's a good point, because maybe he did pull the name out of nowhere. What if he grew up there, had a friend with the last name Stevic, his middle name might be Lyle, his dad's name might be Lyle, and he just put them together. Right. And I think I think this is giving a pretty solid lead. And one of the th- leads that it gives, for sure, is that he wasn't in the Middle East. He was not born in the Middle East. He did not spend time in the Middle East. He did not grow up in the Middle East because this occurred very shortly after the September 11th attacks. And there was a theory out there for a while, just getting bandied about that perhaps he was a terrorist who got cold feet or somehow got out of it. He disappeared for a while. He shows back up and he kills himself because of what he did. Or backing out, you know, he couldn't go home. He just, that is what led to his suicide. And even there was a 2006 letter that the sheriff's department wrote to the FBI and they were asking for assistance. And they actually pointed out that this happened days after September 11th. And they pointed out that he had an accent. 
So without actually saying it, it kind of seemed like they were saying, hey, guys, come on, this might be connected. As far as I can tell, the FBI didn't intervene. But if this isotope testing is accurate, which I believe it is, that's not the connection. And we can kind of put that theory to bed. Yeah. But that leaves us with the big questions. I mean, why was he there? Why was he hiding? Why was he hiding his identity? Why didn't he want people to find him? And then the big one, why did he why did he kill himself? So, good segue. Let's get into theories. What do you think? I mean, just leave it nice and open there. A couple of theories I've heard involves 9/11. So, let's just say Lyle lived in New York City and he worked at the World Trade Center. The isotopes testing doesn't exactly support that, but let's go with it. So when 9-11 happened, but for whatever reason, Lyle wasn't at work that day. Maybe he slept in. Maybe he decided not to go to work that day. I don't know. But it all gets too much when he hears the news of the Twin Towers. He freaks out and just leaves town um, to, I don't know, maybe soul search or get his head around everything that happened. He doesn't have a destination in mind, so he gets on the bus and ends up in Amanda Park. It's getting late on the Friday, so he decides to stay. Maybe by this point, grief and guilt is starting to eat away with him. You know, why wasn't I there? Why wasn't it me? So, and that would kind of explain the pacing as well, that the guilt and the grief then gets too much and he makes the choice to end his life. And his family and friends never look for him because they assume he's just another missing victim of 9-11. The 9-11 connection explains the newspapers. If you're thinking of committing suicide, are you really keeping up on the latest news? However, he was. He was keeping up. Well, what was in the newspapers for, what, three months after 9-11 was 9-11. That was the lead story in every newspaper across the country. So was he checking the paper for more information, more names coming out, Um, checking to see if his family said something about him having been in the towers. I don't think the newspapers are anything, but in this theory, they would be something. Or maybe he was looking for a girlfriend or a a friend, looking for their name to see if they had been found. And maybe he found that they they were found deceased, and that's what triggered the suicide. Right. And I do think... If we knew why he was hiding, we would know why he committed suicide. So that's why these two questions are going hand in hand in our discussion. Honestly, I don't believe that his death was connected to 9-11. I think he fell into a downhill spiral a long time prior. But then for some reason, something came into his head the weeks or months prior to his death. I mean, with his weight loss and and things like that. I think with the organization of it all, I think he planned his death over a long period of time. I think the closeness to 9-11, it was more likely coincidental. I agree with that. I think the weight loss points towards depression. Yes. I think he was living a transient lifestyle, whatever he was running away from avoiding. He just couldn't anymore. His depression got too much for him to handle. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's a case like Lori Erica Ruff where there were family problems and he left and his family's out there thinking he just got up and walked away. And like her, he doesn't want contact and so they don't go looking for him. It's hard to think about 
someone in their 20s with so much ahead of them, traveling the country that depressed. It's odd that he landed in Amanda Park because it is an out-of-the-way place. And a lot of people have said, if you don't know that place, you don't know it. Like, you have to have been there before. You have to be familiar with it. And apparently there are music festivals that come in that area. So there is a theory out there that he was somehow connected to the music festival scene, whether he was, I don't know, a groupie or who knows. And that that's why he went there somewhere that maybe he had been happy before to have ended his life. Because, you know, you really have to ask, why there? Yeah. Was it a random location? And it may have been that he did have a connection there, that he had been part of this music festival scene, and he felt connected, not to that motel, because he would have gone somewhere where people wouldn't know him, obviously, but felt connected to that greater area. Maybe as a child, he vacationed at that lake. Possibly, yeah. I think there's a strong chance. It could have been random. I mean, obviously, I don't know. But I do think there's a strong chance that it wasn't random. And that's the problem with unidentified cases. There are always going to be more questions and answers. I think that's why, I know you and me anyway, are more fascinated by these cases. Because you don't know the motives. You don't know the background. You literally know nothing. The other thing with Joe cases that really, I think, attracts me to them is they're also solvable. We have DNA, we have a photograph, we have isotope testing, we have dental records, we have so much information. Like Lori Erica Ruff, the picture just has to get in front of his family and he could be identified. It feels so solvable. Just giving somebody back their name is just, it's huge. And look, something struck a chord with me, what you said earlier. He had so much in front of him. He was a good-looking guy. He was obviously very thoughtful with the leaving the extra money and making sure he was presentable and that there wasn't a mess left behind. But he had so much to live for, but something has happened. Something triggered his suicide. But, but what? Our second doe case is also one where there was isotope testing, but this is not a suicide. This is a victim of a murderer. A maintenance man, or maybe men, I've seen it kind of reported both ways, at the Cedar Ridge Cemetery in Blairstown, New Jersey, were out on the grounds early on a summer morning, and Blairstown is a small town in western New Jersey. It's near the Pennsylvania border, but up north toward the Poconos, not south, like near Philly. And early in this morning, which was July 15th, 1982, the they came upon the body of a teen girl. She was in a ravine that was either in the cemetery, adjacent to it, in the general area, and her face was battered beyond recognition. It was so violent, the medical examiner didn't even know what eye color she had. Reports of how long the body was out there vary, and they vary quite a bit. It was July in New Jersey, It was hot and humid, and so the conditions may have increased decomposition rates. One report I read said less than a week, another said five to ten days, but then I read elsewhere that it could have been one to three weeks. She was partially dressed when she was found. She had a red v-neck shirt and no shoes, no underwear. She had on a red, white, and blue peasant skirt that would have come a little bit past her knees, kind of mid-calf, 
and she was wearing a gold cross pendant with a gold colored chain and the chain had widely spaced beads on it kind of like a rosary style and the cross was ornate with a like a floral and scroll pattern on it for those who follow us on instagram i have posted a photo of what she was wearing yeah this skirt when you guys see it you have to go out there it's pretty distinct it yes. was a red and white red white and blue pattern but across the bottom was a panel with red, white, and blue peacocks on a white background. Three different people contacted the police after they saw what skirt this was and said they had purchased the same red shirt and skirt outfit. It all came together at a place called the Colombo Dress Factory in Long Island. And investigators were already, for a couple of reasons, leaning towards her coming from Long Island, but... They were able to find a Midwest manufacturer of that exact same skirt from the 1980s. Unfortunately, they distributed nationwide. The label on the shirt is missing and the label on the skirt is faded too badly to read. So here's the thing with this mass-produced clothing. There are some companies that buy this clothing pre-made but not labeled and they slap their own label on them. So they don't actually design and manufacture the clothing themselves. So two people could buy the same exact outfit with two different labels on it. So even though the police have narrowed down the manufacturer, if they, if this was one of those outfits that was sold without a label, that label could actually narrow down where Princess Doe, which is what this um, teenage Doe became known as, it could narrow down where she purchased it. Now, I couldn't confirm this, whether this was a labeled outfit or not, but I mean, the labels are missing and faded, so it's not a lead anyway, which makes it a little frustrating. Two days before Princess Doe was discovered, a woman named Anne Latimer was shopping at a Blairstown grocery store across the street from a cemetery, and it was about 11.30 in the morning. Anne's daughter, who was about six at the time, she points to a young woman and asks her mother if they were eagles on her skirt. Anne tells her daughter they were actually peacocks and she asked the girl where she bought such a beautiful skirt. And it, it is a beautiful skirt. So that's not particularly strange. I know I've done that before. The girl turns away and then Anne is distracted by a little kid pushing a toy shopping cart so she never gets an answer. When Anne hears about a girl being found in the same skirt as the girl she saw that day, she goes straight to the police, but even under hypnosis, she isn't able to remember anything else about the girl. In particular, Anne is asked under hypnosis whether she could remember if the girl was with someone else or if she was alone, but Anne couldn't remember anything. But what this sighting means is that Princess Doe was alive and in the area at least two days before her body was found. And she was wearing the same clothes she was found in. The popular belief that she was a transient, so wearing the same clothes, it doesn't necessarily mean she was killed the day that Anne saw her. It's quite possible she was wearing these clothes for multiple days in a row. And I find the sighting to, to be pretty credible. It has the hallmarks of like a solid memory. The skirt was unique. It stood out. She had a conversation with her child about it. Her memory is even specific. She even remembers what she was distracted by. And the memory was right after the murder. It's not months later that she recalled it. And, you know, after having seen the clothing multiple times in the newspaper. And it's, 
And the memory's not filled in with these dramatic extra bits. It's pretty realistic. Yeah, it's really realistic. And even as they tried to hypnotize her to get more information, more information didn't come out because it wasn't there. So it really has all the hallmarks of a credible sighting. Now, Princess Doe could have been dead up to a week before she was found. And, you know, five to ten days. You know, but with this sighting, I do think it was possible she was alive two days before she was found. And may have had the day of the week mixed up. Maybe it was the week before that it had happened. But the grocery store was really close to where her body was left. So I almost have to wonder if the murder didn't just happen that same day. And that Anne was the last person to talk to her. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, the police took the sighting seriously. Lieutenant Krantz, who's one of the investigators who's really a hero in the story, trying to... He's worked past his retirement trying to keep this Princess Doe case in the public's mind. He went to the grocery store immediately. In addition to looking at all the cards and checks used that day, he went through the store with a fine-tooth comb, searched every trash bin for evidence. He checked all the dumpsters, but he didn't find anything. And what has been determined about Princess Doe isn't a lot due to the state of her body, but it's believed she was between 14 to 20 years old. She was likely Caucasian. She was 5'2 and 110 pounds. She had never given birth. She still had her tonsils and appendix. She had a double piercing in her left ear, but it's not known if her right ear had a piercing or how many. Her shoulder-length hair was brown and straight. Now, there is an odd thing, is that she had red nail polish on her right hand only. Now, this could be a red herring. I mean, it's possible the nail polish on her other hand, which may have been her dominant hand, had already chipped away. And I actually looked this up thinking, is this some signal in sex trafficking that I don't know about, painting one hand, a color, or whatever? But the only thing I found is it's a tradition in India to only paint the non-dominant hand, but that wouldn't apply here. Maybe if she painted her dominant hand, maybe she couldn't paint the other hand and she was waiting for, I don't know, a friend to help her out. Yeah, I have to say, I paint my left hand with, you know, using my right hand and it looks great. And then I switch and it looks like a toddler did it because I'm just so strongly right-handed. So it is it is possible she painted one and then the other one, she couldn't get it neat enough, so she just took it off. It Yeah, I, I couldn't find any you know, signal to sex traffickers or that this meant anything on the streets at the time or any time. The only, like I said, the only thing I found was that connection to India. There were defensive wounds to her hands and she had alcohol in her system. I read the tox screen wasn't really conclusive as far as drugs go. I think one of the reasons she has been unidentified for so long is because She does fit so many moulds. Nothing about her is particularly distinctive. Many girls have a similar general look with, you know, long, straight brown hair. I was on Web Sleuths and every single post was someone knew that they had matched her to. And in every single, I mean, there's about, I think about four or five composite drawings I've seen of her and everyone is dramatically different. Yeah, she has a generic look, so... You change one thing and she looks like a different person, but then she could be anybody. It's it's a tricky one. And we have to remember, I mean, these are all reconstructions because her face was so badly battered and she had decomposed. Exactly. Do we really know that's what she looked like? 
we don't know, which is why I think there are so many drawings out there. And one of the ones out there came out of a confession to the crime. There's kind of a, this is kind of convoluted. In 1998, there was a couple named Arthur and Donna Kinlaw. They'd been married for 20 years. They had nine kids. And they were arrested in 1998 for a 1984 murder of a woman in New York. This woman is unidentified. The Kinlaws were, at the time, running a prostitution ring in the Bronx. So the way the Kinlaws were found is kind of interesting. It's one of those things that makes you wonder if most cold cases aren't just one slip away from being solved. The Kinlaws left New York and spent quite a bit of time floating across the country with their family, committing all sorts of petty crimes along the way. While in California, Donna Kinlaw used the name of a former sex worker in the Bronx to attempt welfare fraud. She got caught, and the authorities went back to the woman in New York to confirm that the identity was stolen. This woman told them that she knew Arthur had killed a young woman named Linda, who had resisted Arthur and Donna's attempts to make her part of their prostitution ring. She gave enough details that they actually knew which cold case they were looking at. So now in an attempt to save herself from murder charges, Donna started talking. She said she knew Arthur had killed an additional three women, and that Linda, who was killed in 1984, was actually the fourth victim. In 1983, he had beat to death a boarder they had living with them, to help cover their bills, they had taken in this uh, disabled woman who was a boarder. Donna said she was buried under the patio of that home, and the police went there. They excavated, and this proved to be correct. They found her body, but they have been unable to identify her. In 1982, in September of 1982, Christine, Coz Christine Kozma's body was found dumped in the woods she had been a sex worker but it was but was killed again because she refused to work for arthur now finally donna gave the details of a murder of an 18 year old girl in july of 1982 and the body was dumped in a cemetery when questioned arthur admitted that he did murder princess doe but oddly enough arthur and donna claim they have no idea what her name was Arthur remained free for 14 years after the last of these four murders, so I think it's doubtful that he stopped here. He hasn't been connected to any others, but if, you know, any police out there want to track where they were living at various times, you might be able to close a couple other cold cases. Donna received a deal for her help. She's actually already out of jail and has been since 2003. Arthur is serving 20 to life. And he's eligible for parole, ne for parole next year. The investigators who questioned Arthur said he hasn't said anything that contradicts the evidence. He hasn't said something happened that they don't have proof that happened. But some of the stuff he said, which they have not released, they can't verify unless they can identify Princess Doe. One of the composite pictures of... Princess Doe is one that Donna gave to a sketch artist. But okay. mind you, this is 1998, and the murder happened in 1982, so it was many years. But you have to wonder, is Arthur's confession even valid? 
I'd like to think that one of the reasons I don't think the Kinlaws were involved was because they didn't know anything about Princess Doe. But, I mean, why would he care to learn her name and her background? Right. I kind of questioned this confession, except that everything else Donna told him was true. You know, she said he killed a boarder. She's under the patio. And that's where she was. So I don't know why Donna would connect to this random case in New Jersey. So I do think Arthur Kinlaw is the murderer of Princess Doe. We'll talk about some other suspects in a little bit. But I don't... I wonder if he he or Donna has more information they could give that would help identify her. I mean, she would have had... You would think she would have had a purse. They would have looked through it for money, surely. Princess Di was buried in the same cemetery she was found in about six months after her body was found. And thank goodness for the kindness of the townspeople because they didn't want her buried in the local potter's field. So they donated for the coffin, plot and headstone. The headstone read, Princess Doe, missing from home, dead amongst strangers, remembered by all. So like Lyle, isotope testing was done to give clues to who Princess Doe was. Her hair showed that about 10 months before her death, she was in the southwest region of the United States. And by southwest region, I'm talking about Arizona, New Mexico and Southern California. She would have travelled for two months before making it to the northeast and settling there. Seeing that it took her two months to get to her final destination, that does support the transient lifestyle idea because in reality, it should have only taken her a couple of days to get there. And the investigators thought she was a transient too, most probably a runaway. Some witnesses in Maryland said that they knew her as the hotel maid, but who knows how valid these sightings are. She most likely used an alias, even if it was her, so it doesn't help with telling us any more of who she is. The tooth isotope testing that was used to tell us more about the person's formative years, more about where they grew up, in this case it led investigators to believe she grew up in the southwest, most likely Arizona, and figuring her age and how long she had been gone from the southwest, this is a pretty solid lead. All investigators would need to do is to send a composite of her to Arizona and the surrounding states and just say, do you have a girl that looks like this that just didn't come back to school one day or do you have a dropout that matches this description? It's a major break in the investigation because unlike what we saw in the Sumter County Doe's case, they don't need to worry about her being from another country, which makes finding out who she is that much of an easier task. Some other theories that have come along aside from Arthur Kinlaw are generally of the serial killer variety, which we see this in pretty much any case, you know, serial killer who is active in the area comes up. The cemetery is off a state route and it is only six miles from a major highway. So while Blairstown is a bit rural, as far as an easy dumping site, it's not the worst option out there. So specifically, I've seen Henry Lee Lucas and Joel Rifkin being named as the possible suspects, not by the police, mind you. These are just theories that people who follow the case have come up with. So Henry Lee Lucas was a prolific serial killer, famous false confessor. He's probably known for his false confessions as much as he's known for his serial killing. 
He was yeah. active during this time, and he was caught in 1983, but he was known to be in Florida and Texas in this time, and without any evidence other than he was a serial killer, I don't know that we can give much weight to Henry Lee Lucas. Now, Joel Rifkin, on the other hand, is a serial killer from the New York City, Long Island area. This guy is pretty disgusting. He murdered and dismembered the women, and he dumped the women's body parts in different locations, making it harder to identify them. And one time he did dump in at least once in New Jersey, if not more. Now, his first known victim was in 1989, so we're talking several years after Princess Doe. But in 1982, he's 23. It's not like he was a 10-year-old boy, so he was old yeah. enough to have done it. Princess Doe was not dismembered, but... Again, perhaps he hadn't built up to that yet if he was the murderer. Now, I do think Rifkin would be a possibility, certainly more than Henry Lee Lucas. But personally, I still lean towards the Kinlaws. I found someone as well. Uh, I did some reading about James Kaodadich, and he's another person whose name I do see thrown around. A bit of background on Kay Odadich. He, at one time, lived in Florida where he killed his roommate and he went to prison for this. When he got out on parole, he moved to Morris County in New Jersey, which is close to Warren County where Princess Doe was found. And where some people think that Kay Odadich may be involved, in November of 1982, so not long after Princess Doe was found, Kay Odadich abducted 18-year-old Amy Hoffman when she was leaving her night part-time job. He sexually assaulted her and stabbed her to death. He left her body in some kind of retention pond. The following month, he abducted, sexually assaulted, then stabbed to death 25-year-old Deidre O'Brien. He left her for dead at a truck stop in Warren County. And the saddest part of this story is that Deidre survived the attack and she managed to crawl up to another truck for help, but she dies before the trucker can get her the help she needed. Now, I know the method doesn't match, blunt force trauma versus stabbing, but the dates, places and victim types makes it worth mentioning. From what I could find, K.O. Dadich was never questioned by the police, which maybe is a mistake. Yes, it's a long shot he's involved, but what would it hurt to ask? With how spot on Donna's other confessions were, even leading police to a body they didn't even know was missing... Yeah, I don't see why she would have made up Princess Doe, but I have to think they know more about her. I think if it's someone we've mentioned today, it's them. I read that there was more than 8,500 unidentified deceased people on NamUs. That number blows my mind, that there are so many people out there with families and loved ones who have no idea where they are. I think that's why these cases stick with me and fascinate me the most because there is so much we don't know and my natural curiosity needs to know everything. Hopefully as isotopes and DNA becomes more advanced, cases like Lyle and Princess Doe and the Sumter County Does, they become less and less of a thing. I say all the time, oh, my favorite mystery, Laurie Arca Ruff was solved, but I'm happy it was solved. I'm happy her family knows, you know, what happened to her. And so I'm hoping that kind of closure can come to these other families, that they can find out what happened. And as you said, they are so easily solved. It just takes one person to recognize them. 
in closing, we just want to thank you guys so much for listening, for engaging with us on social media, our Facebook page, our Facebook group, especially, you know, posting stories, talking to us. We love talking about true crime and mysteries. So, of course, you know, you're really helping entertain us as well. On Twitter at InsightfulPod, you can talk to me. I'm not terribly active on there, but I try. Allie is on Instagram at InsightPod. And a lot of pictures from our, of things from our stories are up there. If you want to send us any show suggestions or have any comments, you can email us at InsightfulPod at gmail.com. Our website is InsightPod.com. Allie has been working really hard on getting our articles in audio form, which is something that some of our listeners have asked for up onto our website. So we appreciate the feedback and the suggestion, and it is definitely getting worked on. And of course, a huge thank you to our Patreon supporters. I can't even tell you how many books I've bought in the last month for upcoming episodes. You guys are really helping us out there with just paying for these things. These things come up. We can do a lot better research when we have access to these out-of-print true crime books that we can't get at the library. To three of our Patreon supporters, so a huge shout out to Mary A. I hope I'm saying that right. I My son's taking French. I probably should ask him. Elizabeth J. and Caitlin. And also to the people who give us five-star reviews, a shout out to True Crime 411, Moogwire, and Mrs. Lover Lover, and I'm actually dying to talk to all three of you guys about your usernames, but <laughs> you know, so if you want to shoot me an email and tell me why that's your username, that would be great. So we will go ahead and talk to you guys next week when we have a very special guest on the show. Thanks. <laughs>